If you have your Bible, I invite you to open up to the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 4. We're finishing up a section that we started a few weeks ago with Pastor Billy. Pastor Billy started us off in chapter 3 looking at the miracle that happens in which the 40-year-old man who had been a cripple since birth was made whole. And then from that, they went and these uh, Peter and John proclaimed the name of Jesus. They told the crowds that gathered, this happened through the power of Jesus. And 5,000 people came to know Christ. An additional 2,000 people from what we had seen before came to place their faith in Jesus. But it wasn't all perfect because then what happened were the Jewish leaders came and called Peter and John. They put them in prison, and that's what we saw last week. They threatened them, do not proclaim the name of Jesus. And we're going to be finishing up this section uh, this morning in chapter 4. Often one of the greatest challenges of war and battle goes overlooked due to our highlight view of history. Or sometimes it goes overlooked, this incredible challenge, because of Hollywood's focus only on the heroics. We love reading about victories. We love recounting the heroic deeds of those who were involved in battle and refused to surrender. But in this highlights or heroics focus that Hollywood and and history show us and pay attention to, we often neglect to consider possibly the most difficult challenge in war. Several years ago, I, I read a book that followed a group of soldiers, a group of paratroopers in the midst of World War II. These men who were involved in the invasion of Normandy, who jumped behind the enemy lines with all of the different tasks and missions that they had to do. Now on every page of this book, it also was made into a a series, a docu-series, all of the, everything that you see is just heroic action after heroic action. Victory after victory, battle after battle, but you also see all of the casualties All of the difficulties. Battle after battle, focusing on their heroics, their daring feats under fierce opposition. But perhaps what stood out to me more was not their heroics and victories in battle. What stood out to me was the challenge they faced between those battles. See, from our perspective, once the highlight and heroics have passed, we expect that the movie to just then go to the happy ever after portion. It's the end of the movie after that battle, after the private is saved, after the bridge is won, after the victory has happened, where you then get to the end of the movie and you have the picture of the real life people and then the little subtitle that says what happened to their life. And we almost think that must be what war is like. You face the hard battle and then it just all gets easier after that. But that is not the reality of war. The reality is after facing a fierce battle, what do most soldiers have to look forward to? What do soldiers expect after having survived a battle? There's another battle coming. 
The reality of war is that having won one battle, there's usually another to fight and another and another until the war is over. One of the things that this book highlighted was the difference of these wide-eyed green recruits who had gone through boot camp, who had been told this is what you should expect in battle. They thought they understood, but the difference after they had actually experienced battle. And now the next battle isn't a figment of their imagination. It's not something that they think what might happen. They know what it costs to be in battle. They know the casualties and the wounds that can happen in the midst of the fight. It's one thing to have a battle thrust upon you and rise to the occasion in a moment of adrenaline and survival instinct, but it's something else entirely when after the battle is over, after the adrenaline has subsided, after the casualties have been tallied and the wounds have been bandaged, it's something entirely different to know the cost and choose to continue marching on mission. What is necessary to make that kind of decision? Great courage. How can someone continue to pursue their calling after having experienced the trauma of battle? Only if they have a source that provides them great courage. In our passage this morning, Peter and John have just been through battle. They were attacked in this spiritual war because they did what they were told to do. They boldly proclaimed the name of Jesus. They were imprisoned for that. They were brought before the leaders who had condemned their Savior and crucified him on the cross. Those leaders questioned them. And then the most powerful leaders within the Jewish community threatened them and said, do not speak of Jesus again. And in the moment, Peter and John come out victorious because they said, whether you think it's wrong or right for us to obey men instead of God, you judge for yourselves. We cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. They say, even in the casualties of war, we will continue marching towards the goal. But how about after? How about when they are let out? When they go and see their wives, their children, their friends, and they think, man, I know I said I'd continue, but I, do I really want to go through that again? We got off easy this time. Am I really prepared to continue doing what Christ told me to do. Here's the question for us. If you know the last time you proclaimed the name of Jesus, you were imprisoned, questioned, and threatened, what's in the back of your mind every time an opportunity arises for you to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus? Is this going to be worth it? Do I really want to risk entering a battle again? I survived the last one. I don't know if I'm going to survive this one. What if I just stayed quiet this time? Once you realize there's a cost to pay every time the opportunity comes, part of you wonder, am I really willing to pay the cost? What if this time it costs me everything? 
This is where we find Peter and John as we come to our passage. They face battle. They've emerged victorious, but they know the war is not over. They know that in order to faithfully fulfill their calling, they will have to enter battle again. But they're human. They know that if they are faithfully fulfilling their calling, if they are to face future battles, then they need courage. So in our passage, Peter and John are going to seek that courage. What we're going to observe is both where they find courage and how they go about finding it. Here's my goal for us this morning. I want us to know and understand, understand where courage is found. And then I also hope that we can see how to continually find that courage. And then finally, having found that courage, I hope we use it to faithfully fulfill our calling. Here's our big idea this morning. Seek courage in God's sovereignty in order to pursue God's calling with confidence. Or seek courage in God's sovereignty by continuing to pursue God's calling with confidence. I think, is the handout different for you guys? That one. Use that one. And the one I just said. Seek courage in God's calling in God's sovereignty, in order to pursue God's calling with confidence. Anyone want me to say it again so you can write it down? I'll say it one more time. Seek courage in God's sovereignty in order to pursue God's calling with confidence. Let's start to, by just looking at the whole passage. We're, what, what we're going to do is we're going to go one time through the passage just to see where it is that they find courage. After that, we're going to go back through and look at how exactly they went about doing this. Look at verse 23 with me, 23 through 30. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Where do Peter and John find their courage? They find it in the person and character of God. Look at all the ways God's sovereignty, God's power, God's dominion, God's control, God's authority. Look at how it's demonstrated in just these few short verses. He is, they lifted their voices together to God. How do they address him? Sovereign Lord. The Gentiles, the people's plot in vain. Why? Because you are powerful. They are against the Lord, against his anointed. But everything is going to happen according to your plan, your hand, what you predestined to take place. Father, grant to your servants, grant to us, you the one who has power, 
Stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. What Peter and John, what these people are revealing is that God is in control. That he is sovereign. What does it mean that God is sovereign? That nothing happens that is outside of his plan. Peter and John are turning to find comfort, confidence, and courage in the character of God. God is sovereign. And he's in control. Now I'm going to just venture a guess right now. Here's my suspicion. Very few of you were blown away with that statement. Very few of here, you arrived here this morning thinking, oh my word, God's sovereign? God is in control? He has power? He has a plan? That just blew my mind. If you are someone that that just blew your mind, wonderful. But chances are, if you've come here, you're like, yeah, I would expect to hear that at church. I would expect for you to say that God is sovereign. But you know, and, and so if I already know that God is sovereign, I, I think I don't really need to spend much time on this passage. Do you think Peter and John are turning to God's sovereignty because they didn't already know that he was sovereign? Do you think that they're turning to this because they forgot that truth? The reality is God's sovereignty is a theology that we quickly believe but it is much harder for us to apply. We'll say, no, I believe that God is in control of everything. I believe that God has a plan, that it all works together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. But if I can quote the great philosopher, boxer, Mike Tyson, Everyone has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. It's easy for us to say, no, I've got it. I understand that God is sovereign. I'm, I'm firm on that foundation until you get punched in the mouth. Peter and John just got punched in the mouth. They just went through this and they just said, wait, I know you're sovereign, God, but we just suffered. We just were imprisoned. We were just threatened. I was sitting there in jail thinking, is my wife becoming a widow tonight? But where do they find courage, comfort, and confidence? They go back to that truth. God is sovereign. They turn to God. They turn to the truth that is their firm foundation. They run back to the fundamentals and say, this still remains true. Why? Because if they do not cling to God's sovereignty, if God is not in control, if God is not the one who will bring his plan to completion, then there is no reason to continue the mission for there is no guarantee of the result. But if in fact God is sovereign, if in fact he will 
cause his plan to come to completion, if in fact there is a guarantee of the results that he will be glorified, that Christ will return victorious, then we can proceed with confidence, we can have comfort, we can act in courage. Seek courage in God's sovereignty in order to pursue God's calling with confidence. Where do they find their courage, their comfort, their confidence? In the sovereignty of God, an understanding that God is control. So the question for us then is, where do we find our courage? Where do we find our comfort? Where is our confidence? After we get punched in the mouth, what do we do? Where do we turn to? What is it that causes us to say, wait a second, this is a battle I need to continue pursuing. Yes, maybe I came out victorious from one battle, but there's another battle on the horizon, and I need to stay faithful to that calling. Where do we turn? Are we seeking courage in the right places? Are we boldly accomplishing our purpose, standing on the firm foundation that is God's sovereignty? Do you move forward with confidence knowing that no matter the cost, no matter the consequences, in the end, when the plan is completed, we will stand as conquerors with Christ? It's what we sang this morning. We are more than conquerors through Christ. Seek courage in God's sovereignty in order to pursue God's calling with confidence. But what we must understand, though, is that this is not a one-and-done process. The solution is not for us to come here this morning, go through a crash course on God's sovereignty, and say, I've got it. I've passed. I now understand and believe that God is sovereign. And so from here on out, I will always have the courage I need every time I come to a battle. Peter and John already knew this. And yet after they went through the battle, after they got punched in the mouth, they ran back and said, we need to be reminded. We need to see what it is that gives us courage to continue. And where do they find it? They find it in the sovereignty of God. So we've seen now where Peter and John seek courage. Now I want to look at how they find that courage. For that, we're going to go back through the passage and we're going to parse out the various ways that they remind themselves of the truth of God's sovereignty. Here's the first way that they're going to do it. They're going to turn to redemptive relationships. Look at verses 23 through the first part of verse 24. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Where do Peter and John go when they are released? Do they run away? Do they go hide? Do they try to get as far away as possible from the danger? No, they run to this community that Christ has established. The, the community that Christ has redeemed, that he has purchased with his blood. This redemptive community that is going to help point them to Christ. Look what the friends do. When they had reported to their friends what had happened, when the friends heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. 
See, we need to understand and comprehend the importance of redemptive relationships. These are the relationships that God has given us within his body to build us up, to make us strong, so that what we see in Ephesians 4, that we no longer be tossed to and fro by the waves of doctrine, so that we can stand firm in the image of Christ. What we need to understand is we can't do that on our own. We're not that strong. Peter and John, they're big deals in the Bible. These guys got to walk with Jesus. If there was someone who thought, you know what, based on all the training I've been through, I think I can do this on my own. Instead of turning to these people who rejected Jesus just a few weeks ago and now are finally willing to to place their faith in Jesus, am I really going to turn to these young Christians to support me who I've been walking with God for so long? Yes. They turn to this other community of believers. We need people who in our times of trial will comfort us by taking us before the throne of our sovereign God. Look what it says. They reported what had happened and what do they do? Their friends heard it and they lifted their voices together to God. Here's my question for us. Do you have friends like that? Do you have people, when they hear of your trials, brothers and sisters who, when they learn about the spiritual battle you are facing, do they take you to God? Or do they offer you self-help? This is what we're meant to be in this church. When we make a covenant with each other, that we will encourage each other, that we will build each other up. We will take each other to Scripture, take each other before the throne of our sovereign God. That's what we're called to do. Do you have friends like that? Have you built up relationships like that so that when you realize I'm weak, they can strengthen you by taking you to Christ? Do you seek friends for that. See, the part of the problem is you might actually have friends who are capable of doing that, but they have no idea the trials you're going through because you don't want to tell them. You look weak. It's not fun to be the weak one who needs to be strengthened up, and yet that's what we need. And so do you, if you have those friends around you, are you willing to actually go to them and say, brother, sister, I need help. My courage is running away. I need help or I'm going to abandon the mission. Are you a friend like that? Here's gonna, I'm going to give you a challenge, and it might shock you the way I say this, but stop saying, I'll be praying for you. Now, you might be like, wait a second. <laughs> I think we're supposed to be praying for each other. Here's where I want to challenge, though. I think one of the things that makes Christians liars the most is that statement. I'll be praying for you. Oh, shoot, I never did. Totally forgot. Can I offer a different solution? Instead of saying, I'll be praying for you, say, can we pray about that right now? Can we take a moment right now that I can lift you up, that we can both go before the throne of a sovereign God? Can we do this right now? Please understand, continue praying for people even when you're not together. But how often do we spend 
30, 40, 50 minutes. It's the prayer time of our community group. We spend all of this time sharing the trials, but then we never actually lift them up in prayer. We say, okay, we'll write them all down and we'll pray about them sometime during the week. And then we don't. Right then, we don't have the solutions. Right then, say, let's pray about this right now. We must seek courage in God's sovereignty by communing with other believers who point us to God. That's the first place that Peter and John turn to. They go to other believers who will point them to God. Let's continue on. What else do they do? Continuing in verse 24, we see the prayers of praise, what they actually pray for. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Finding their friends, the friends lift their voices in prayer. But I want us to notice the content of their prayer. Where does their prayer start? Sovereign Lord. That word there is actually the word that we get in English, the word despot. It's the word that often in our settings has a negative connotation, but here it means absolute, total authority and power. Oh, despot. Oh, the one who is in total control. The one who has total power. They begin their prayer recognizing who God is. In other words, they begin their prayer recognizing God's sovereignty. Where does the prayer go from there? They offer praises that demonstrate God's power and authority. Why? What do they say? Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. What does that imply that God made everything? His power and his authority. If he made everything, he is the most powerful powerful. If he made everything, it all belongs to him and he rules it all. In other words, they are remembering his sovereignty. Sometimes I think we are in the habit of beginning our prayers with praise. But often we'd skip the praise and get straight to the petition. God, this is what I need right now. And, and then when we actually do the part where we praise God for who he is, I think often we, we associate it in the wrong way. We do it the way we would do it with a human relationship. See, if I go to my boss and say, you're such a good boss. You're so awesome. Oh, the plan that you had that, that part. Wow, I was like amazed at how you did that. And then each thing, or, or if one of my kids come to me and say, dad, you're such a good dad. We love you. Oh, you make the best venison. Oh, you, you love us so much. What's going on in the back of my mind? What do you want? And sometimes I think that we look at prayers of praise in that way of like, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to butter you up a little bit here so that I can get what I really need. But the fact is, we, we pray the prayers of praise, one, because he's worthy of all praise, but there's another reason. We do that to remind us of who he is. This is the God I'm praying to. I am praying to the sovereign Lord. I am praying to the God who is powerful enough to create everything, who has the authority over everything. The prayer of praise is not just because he's worthy of it. It's also to remind us of who he is. And that's where their prayers go. 
Do we pray like this, or are we so quick to get to our requests that we forget to praise God for who he is? We need to turn to God and praise him for who he is so that we can remember, so that we can have comfort and confidence and courage in the character of God. Seek courage in God's sovereignty by praying praises to our God who is the creator of all. It puts it in the right perspective. The disciples then turn to, to find sovereignty in Scripture. As they pray, they recall what Scripture has already revealed regarding God's sovereign plan. Look at what they say in verses 25 and 26. Who, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They're turning here to quote from Psalm 2, a psalm of David. What is this revealing when they turn to Scripture? That God is in control. He already knew this was going to happen. Hundreds, thousands of years before, he said, this is what's going to happen. He is the one who revealed. It was the Spirit that showed this to David. Now, we can still look at this quote and say, well, this, this doesn't exactly seem encouraging. Why do the Gentiles rage? Why are the people of this earth set against you? But if you look closely, there is encouragement in what they say. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? They have set themselves against you and you're anointed, but it is vanity. If you look at the rest of the psalm, too, and I encourage you at some point to go and, and read through Psalm 2. This is just the beginning of the psalm. The Psalm 2 is a psalm of victory. It begins and says, why are they doing this? This is ludicrous. Why would the people set themselves against God, don't you, they know who you are? Don't they understand that this is vanity? What David says later in verses 4 through 6 of, uh, in Psalm 2 says this, He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. As Peter and John and the people bring this prayer to God, they recall scripture and they say, why are the people doing this? They're recalling the rest of the passage that says, this makes no sense. How does God respond to the way in which people rebel and push against him? He laughs. He laughs at it. He holds them in derision. Because what he has ordained to happen will happen. Do we turn to Scripture to remind us of God's sovereignty? In the moment when we get punched in the mouth, in the moment when we can so quickly forget, do we turn back to see God's promises, to see God's prophecy, to see that God said, this is how it will be, and then trace and say, and that's how it happened. Do we find comfort, courage, 
confidence in seeing the sovereign God who revealed his sovereign plan to us in his holy word? Do we remember God is in control by seeing that he has already revealed what would happen? Now, don't misunderstand me. This isn't God foretelling and using a crystal ball and saying, yes, when I was back, I had this power and I can, I can see what's going to happen. And then I just wrote that. God's not using a crystal ball. God's saying, no, this is what I said would happen. And so it happened. I ordained for this to happen. We see that in this next part. But, but first, seek courage in God's sovereignty by recognizing Scripture reveals everything is according to God's sovereign plan. But now we come to what is perhaps the most encouraging story, most encouraging event we have in Scripture in all of human history that reveals God's sovereign power because he can transform the greatest tribulation into the greatest demonstration of his power. Verse 27 through 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The disciples now turned to what they had seen in the example and the story of Jesus. See, if there was any moment that would seem like maybe God is not sovereign, if there was any time in which we might question, is God actually in control? If there was a, an event that we would say, I don't know, it would be the crucifixion of Christ. And yet, what do we see? If there was any moment that would seem like maybe God is not sovereign, it would be the death of Christ. But if there is any moment that proves God is sovereign, it is the death of Christ. This is the greatest cause for comfort, confidence, and courage. The crucifixion was part of the plan. Every element happened as he predestined, as he ordained. Now understand, this is a hard element of God's sovereignty for us to understand. This is a hard part for us to see, wait a second, God, you chose for this to happen. And one of the tensions we're going to have throughout the entire book, of the, book uh, the entire Bible, but also in the book of Acts, is the tension between God's sovereignty and humanity's responsibility. And there is a tension here that these people are guilty for the death of Jesus, and yet it was also God's plan for that to happen. And, and you, if you're looking for me to explain all of that and to give you the answer and to make this all fit perfectly in your mind of like, oh, well, this is how all of this works together, I'm not able to do that. I don't understand how all of this perfectly works together. I don't understand why God chose to do it this way. But I have total confidence that the way in which God chose for human history to play out, it was the way that produced the most glory for himself. And he chose in his love for us that Christ would be crucified for our sins so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Christ died, but it was not defeat. Christ rose the conquering king. This is our comfort, confidence, and courage that Christ's death was not defeat. Christ's death was victory. 
this is the power of our sovereign God who can transform the greatest tribulation into the greatest demonstration of his power, authority, and sovereignty. And we know that that's not where the story ended. He rose again. That is what the, de the disciples have been proclaiming. That's what got them in trouble. When the chief uh, elders and the, the uh, Sadducees saw that they were proclaiming resurrection from the dead, that's what put them in prison. But they are proclaiming, they are witnesses of Christ's resurrection. They are witnesses of the sovereignty of God. How does the death of Jesus produce courage, comfort, and confidence? Because if God can transform that into a victory, what can't he transform? The answer is nothing. Genesis 15, 19 through 20, we see this theme throughout Scripture. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Romans 8, 28, and we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If God can transform the death of Christ into victory, what else can't he transform? Nothing. Confidence. Comfort. Courage. Are we looking to what God sovereignly accomplished through Christ and the cross for courage? Can we look up from our problems and see the cross as a symbol, not of defeat, but of sovereignty and victory? Seek courage in God's sovereignty by remembering God transformed the greatest tribulation to produce the greatest good. Finally, they come to their request. Verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon their hearts and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Finally, they come to their request. Notice the humility. How do they refer to themselves before this holy and sovereign God? They call themselves servants. But there's actually a pattern here. Everyone in this entire passage who is in a right relationship to God is called what? A servant. Look back at verse 25. David, your servant. Verse 27, your, 27, your holy servant, Jesus. Verse 29, now referring to the, themselves, your servants. Verse 30, your holy servant, Jesus. The way in which we come before this sovereign God is humbly making a request. But I want to highlight two elements of why seeing ourselves as a servant is important. One, it's the aspect of humility and submission. God, I need to accomplish the mission that you have given me. Lord, give me the power to do what you have called me to do. I am humbly asking for your help because I can't do this. I am submitting myself to you by calling me my, myself your servant because you are the one who can give me commands. But the other side of referring to ourselves as his servants is to give us courage and confidence. If you find yourself in the same category as King David and King Jesus, you're in good company. How will God respond to the nations who oppose his servants. He will laugh at them. He will bring the iron rod. You want to be in the category of servant. 
but I want you to see what they ask. What got them into this whole mess in the first place? What was the first thing that happened in the story in chapter 3? A sign and wonder. What then made that so much worse in the eyes of the leaders? They boldly proclaimed the name of Jesus. What do they pray for right now? God, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They are literally asking that God would continue to do what put them in prison in the first place. That's courage. If I'm in that place, what am I praying for? God, look upon the threats of these people and judge them. God, look at the threats that they are doing and protect me. God, look at what's happening and remove all of these obstacles. They don't pray about any of that. And I'm not saying that we can't pray for that, but their main concern, the thing that they are most concerned about in this moment is, God, we're really worried that we might give up. We're worried that we might not actually do what you have told us to do. So God, even though there are threats, we're not asking you to remove the threats. We're asking you to give us boldness to do what you have told us to do. Are we humbly asking our sovereign God for this kind of help? Are we coming into his presence as those who serve him and asking him that he would help us accomplish his mission? Seek courage in God's sovereignty by asking God for boldness to accomplish his mission through his power. And then have full confidence that the answer he will give you is yes. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. How did God answer their prayer? He said, yes. How does this passage end? And they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. One of the things that Jesus told his disciples before he left in, in chapters uh, John 12 through 17, Jesus kept on telling them, whatever you ask of the Father will be granted to you. And when we went through John, what we saw there is that what he's saying is according to God's will. This is not a, a genie in a bottle that we get to say, no, whatever I ask of God, as long as I get the right formula, I say in his name, those are the magic words, you get whatever you want. No, what he's saying is in his name means according to his will. How are these disciples praying? According to his will. They are saying, God, you have given us this mission. Let us accomplish your mission. And then what did God say? Yes. I will do what you have asked me to do. Seek courage in God's sovereignty by knowing God answers his children when they pray according to his will. Do we know God well enough to know what his will is? Do we know him well enough to know this is, I know this is what you would have me ask for. As we conclude this message, I want to offer a challenge as well as a concern. 
Some of you are here and you have been faithfully proclaiming Christ and you've gotten punched in the mouth. Maybe once, maybe twice, maybe many times, you have gone and said, this is what my mission is. I am to be a witness of Christ in Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Christ has commissioned me to be his witness. I am called to boldly proclaim Christ and that is a hill I am willing to die on. And then you got punched in the mouth. And you're apprehensive of doing it again. And you're saying, I'm not sure I can pay that cost again. I got off easy last time, but I know there was the potential that that could have gotten a lot worse. And understand, that's the reality that most of the world faces to a far greater degree than what we face here. But I'll, I'll admit to you, there are times when I'm scared and I'm thinking, man, what are my kids going to have to go through? What's going to happen when I preach that one passage in the Bible that is socially wrong and might someday be called hate speech, might someday be illegal? What's going to happen to my wife and kids when I have to go to jail for this? Or if it doesn't happen in my lifetime, what's going to happen to my children when it happens in their lifetime? And what I would encourage, if you have been faithfully proclaiming the name of Jesus and you've gotten punched in the mouth, turn to his sovereignty. Find courage in his sovereignty so that the end of this passage can be the end of your story as well. You continue to speak the word of God with boldness as you are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the challenge. Now I'm going to give the concern. I think that for many of us here, and I'm going to include myself in this, we don't see the need for courage because we have not continually and constantly been fulfilling our calling. Do you know who doesn't need courage? The deserter. The person who has left the hill. The person who says, I'm not going to get punched in the mouth. You know what? I'll leave that to someone else to do that. You don't need courage at that point. You might think, wow, this passage is great, but I don't really see the need for courage in my life. And I want to just challenge you as I'm challenging myself. Is the reason that you are not feeling the need and you're saying, God, yes, help me. I need this kind of courage. Is the reason you don't feel that need because you have not joined in the calling. You haven't gotten punched in the mouth. The challenge for you, if you are in that place and you're evaluating yourself, is not to continue on mission. It's to join the mission. And you can have this same courage. Join the mission. There might be a cost in this lifetime, but understand that Christ returns as the conquering king. He's in control. And then take action. Where do we find our courage? In knowing we serve a sovereign God, he's in control. How do we find and keep that courage? By communing with other believers who point us to God. 
by praying praises to our God who is the powerful creator of all, by recognizing scripture reveals everything is according to God's sovereign plan, by remembering God transformed the greatest tribulation to produce the greatest good, by asking God for boldness to accomplish his mission through his power, by knowing God answers his children when they pray according to his will. Seek courage in God's sovereignty in order to pursue God's calling with confidence.